the bottom line is it, it is difficult bringing drugs to market. It's uh, 20, 30 years ago, people said too, you know, 90% of, uh, of new drugs that enter clinical trials fail. And I think that's roughly what it is now. So that's, that's difficult. Uh, it shows you the difficulty of it. I think part of what people need to do is to, um, is to close that gap between research and clinical development. I think people need to get uh, smarter in terms of how they're doing clinical trials at all levels, you know, be it from community hospitals to university hospitals, have people really engaged in, in that aspect of closing that, that, that gap that currently exists between uh, research and clinical applications. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. Today we are returning to a very exciting topic of immune oncology, and we will talk in detail about novel approaches to treat cancer based on CAR T-cell technology. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Eric van Hoffer, the senior advisor and former president of Affi Immune Therapeutics. Eric's story is a showcase of a remarkable career in the biotech industry. Eric studied biology at UC Berkeley and received his PhD from the University of Southern California, where he worked on genetotoxicity studies of cancerogenic petroleum fractions. Eric continued his career in cancer research doing two postdocs at University Hospital Zurich and at Harvard, and then taking a position of assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. In 1992, Eric made a transition to biopharmaceutical industry leading the development of antisense oligonucleotide therapies at Hybridon. Eric subsequently led multidisciplinary drug development programs at Millennium Pharmaceuticals as a director of drug discovery research. Eric has been fundamental to two prominent immune oncology companies, Antigen Express, a company focusing on a peptide-based cancer vaccines, and Affimmune Therapeutics, a biotech startup developing novel approaches for CAR T-cell-based therapies. With about 50 articles in peer-reviewed journals and four patents, Eric is a true expert in the field of oncology, and it is my privilege and honor to welcome him on our show. Eric, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome on our podcast. My pleasure. Good to, good to be with you here. Perfect. So, Eric, uh, you have a very fascinating and inspiring career and working both in academia and in industry. So can you describe the arc of your journey for us? What got you inspired in biology in the first place and how that interest led you through the amazing career steps that you have experienced so far? Sure, yeah. So my, my interest in biology really started when I was very young. Um, uh, I, just, I think probably when I was in elementary school, I was just fascinated with the uh, with biology, I remember the first time looking at the simple things one does in school, looking at an onion skin under a microscope, seeing the beautiful organization of, uh, of cells and whatnot. And, and the more I looked into that, the more I could see this, this beautiful kind of organization that there was in, in biology and nature. 
So that got me started at an early age. I was also fortunate when I was in um, high school as a teenager. I had the opportunity of uh, working at a uh, um, hospital in um, Los Angeles under the direction of the head of surgery there. Uh, and again, that was that was that's where I really began doing cancer research. Um, so this was this was really wonderful. I mean. It, you know, every time when you work at school, you have a very limited kind of um, uh, opportunities. Uh, here, this was actually working on things more directly related to patient care. So that was that was a, 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 a probably one of the most motivating things in my career, and uh, it really kind of evolved from there. Um, you know, I continued some work during doing college, and then in graduate school, it being, became clear to uh, you know what my interest was in terms of cancer research, and uh, it really kind of took off from there. Perfect. And uh, speaking about cancer, uh, I think you've been working in the field of oncology for, for decades now. And I'm just curious to hear from you, what is your take on the evolution of the approaches that we apply to treat cancer, both from the scientific and the medical uh, standpoint? And um, yeah, what is the role of immunology uh, in that uh, oncological treatments? Yeah, no, good question. Um, you know, there's been a lot of change over the last 30 years. Um, uh, I, I think one saw in the 1990s kind of a plateau in terms of progress women was making against cancer. Um, immunology, I mean, people were kind of fascinated with this. But there were, you know, anecdotal um, bits of evidence for the role of the immune system in, in, uh, in oncology. So I recall in the 1980s, people would do little experiments where they would irradiate tumor cells uh, for murine tumors, uh, inoculate a mouse with those and like a vaccine. And occasionally you would see you would get regression of tumors in the mice. But people really didn't understand immunology enough to be able to apply this in any um, really practical way. So a lot of it was just, it just waited for, um, you know, basic research to be done in the field of, of immunology so that people could really get a handle on on the complex immune system. Um, I mean, part of that too is, is you know, the, the gap between experimental systems, model systems, and what happens in people. So, you know, animal models uh, will give you some information, but at the end, they, they clearly lack, you know, they, they don't predict that well what you're gonna see in the clinic uh, with any model. And I think that's particularly true in the field of immunotherapy, because um, you know, mouse um, immune systems is different from human immune systems. Um, so it, it's really a big jump. So I think a lot of it had to do with the, uh, just the, how the knowledge has evolved in the field of, of immunology and immunotherapy before being able to apply it. And I, I think that, you know, certainly in the last decade with the advent of, um, I mean, really two things. One was in the early 2000s. Uh, with adoptive immunotherapy. This was a work by C. Rosenberg at the NCI, showing that he could get a 50% response rate in patients with uh, metastatic melanoma, and that those data have persisted through today. I mean, that really showed that if you had the right T cells, you could uh, have a curative effect in cancer. Uh, and then clearly, you know, in 2010, people, uh, there was, that was really the advent of checkpoint inhibitors, also showing, you know, very impressive responses to many cancers, um, albeit it's in a, a, you know, roughly 30% of patients, 20 to 30%. So 
So, but again, this was something in an area where, um, you know, previously there was really no, uh, there's a lot of patients for whom there were no other types of therapy. So two very important points, one on, you know, actively um, showing that active immune cells could do something. And then the other side of that is that if you, you know, take the brakes off the immune system, you can uh, also have a very good effect. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, let's talk maybe a little bit about uh, the first component and uh, also about the alpha immune therapeutics. I'm mm -hmm. curious uh, to, to know uh, what actually alpha immune therapeutics is doing uh, and how the CAR T cell based therapies that you are developing are different from, from what other companies in this space are doing. Sure. Right. So, um, what's different about alpha immune is that they're using affinity tuned CAR T cells. So, what that means is that uh, they're taking CAR T cells targeted to tumor antigens, but they're tuning the affinity so that it's optimal in terms of uh, getting maximum activity of the T cell against the cancer. Um, up until now, the majority of people simply take, you know, either a single chain monoclonal antibody, which binds the most tightly to the target. And then they use that to essentially target the CAR T cell. But this is, these are not really physiological levels. So generally, this is the, you know, CAR T cells are targeted uh, with uh, single-chain molecule antibodies that bind in the nanomolar uh, KD realm, which is about thousand-fold uh, more, more tightly bound than um, normal T cell receptors. Normal T cell receptors identify their targets and bind in the low micromolar range. So... Um, so what really appealed to me uh, is, is that what you're doing in terms of affinity tuning is you're, you're making more physiological relevant and you're, you're preserving more of the natural T cell function. So, um, you know, as I indicated, people have seen that if you get the right T cells, those cells on their own can kill cancer cells. Um, and I think by affinity tuning, you're basically preserving those functions. So you get less T cell exhaustion, you get better serial killing, so going from one tumor cell to the next. Um, and the other advantage there as well is that uh, most tumor antigens are not really tumor-specific. So in hematological malignancies, it's somewhat a, a, of a, a more rare issue where you have CD19 that's specifically expressed on tumor cells, also B cells, but, but B cell aplasia one can deal with clinically. Um, most cancer cells are truly just associated. So you have some low level ex of expression on normal cells. Uh, so again, if you have affinity tuned CAR T cells, you can tune them such that they will not kill um, normal cells with low basal levels of expression of a target, but they will very effectively kill tumor cells that have higher levels of expression. So it's really two things that the company is accomplishing. One is to preserve better T cell function, get more longer lived T-cells, uh, and also to avoid uh, what's called on-target off-tumor toxicity. So you're making it safer for, for the patients as well. So sounds fantastic. So I'm curious about the technical details of this uh, affinity tuning approach. So how that can be achieved practically? Right. Excellent question. So the, um, the CAR T-cells, again, the affinity tuned, uh, th what we've done is looked at the uh, that which is used to target the CAR T cells, so either single-chain monoclonal antibodies, and simply by various methods, uh, modifying those single-chain monoclonal antibodies or natural ligand 
by mutagenesis or some other means, such that they do not bind quite as tightly. And one needs to do a number of steps to ensure that one still is getting specificity uh, and yet um, you know, lowering the, uh, the binding affinity. Um, so it's really, you know, molecular biology, um, uh, mutagenesis approaches. Actually, it's an interesting story for the founding of Affiamune, the, one of the initial targets we're going after, ICAM-1. Um, studies were done years ago by one of the co-founders of Affiamune, Moon Su Jin, uh, in the laboratory of Tim Springer at Harvard, where um, he was looking at the interaction between the target, ICAM-1, and its natural, uh, natural ligand, LFA-1, uh, lymphocyte function-associated antigen-1. What's interesting with that action, with that interaction, is the LFA one can actually change its conformation in a way that changes the affinity. So what Mutsu Jin was doing, who was now a professor at Cornell Medical Center, uh, um, was to do directed mutagenesis by variety of means to get a series of uh, different affinity mutants that bind to the, the down to ICAM one, all the way low nanomolar up to the micromolar level. So at that point, it was possible to do a structure-activity relationship, which one does all the time in small molecule drug discovery, but has not been done in CAR T cells up until now, really. So that was the perfect opportunity. You know, once he had these different affinity mutants, simply put those onto CAR T cells <clears throat> and then look at a variety of studies, both uh, um, in the laboratory and in animal models, to identify which is really the optimal um, CAR T cell. Perfect. And I think it's a great example, again, of how fundamental science is important to, to drive uh, our progress in, uh, in the world of biopharmaceuticals. Very true. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm still constantly impressed by, by the power and importance of those cells adhesion uh, molecules, right? And uh, what you just mentioned is, is super fascinating, right? If you can just tweak a little bit the structure of those uh, ICAM molecules or perhaps other uh, cell uh, adhesion molecules, we can uh, we can change the interaction between the cells and uh, hence um, fine-tune uh, therapeutics. Uh, sounds really exciting. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments or would like to recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can also reach us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To catch our next episode, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Please rate us there and leave a comment. This helps us make this show better and reach more people interested in personalized medicine. And now, let's get back to the interview. Eric, one more thing that caught me thinking when I was looking through the pipeline of, of Afimmune uh, were the bispecific CAR T cells. So can you tell our audience what those are? And again, uh, how easy or how difficult is it to produce them? Right. So, um, you know, one issue with any type of targeted therapy. So anytime one identifies a target on, on cancer cells that, that uh, you know, you, you attack that target, you can kill the tumor cell. <clears throat> Tumor cells tend to fight back at you. So what they do is simply, uh, you know, identify a way of losing that one target and they happily then grow. So if you have multiple targets, you're then you're, you're cutting off an escape route of, the, of that particular uh, uh, tumor. So the other, the other interesting thing about the, one of the, the first target we're going after, ICAM-1, is that's actually inducible by a cytokine re released by activated T cells. 
So when T cells, CAR T cells, any other type of T cell become activated and start killing tumor cells, they'll release interferon gamma, which is a cytokine. That cytokine happens to upregulate the expression of ICAM-1. So you're forcing the tumor to do something it doesn't normally do, which is to increase the expression of a target rather than decrease the expression. Now, that's interesting in a, in a, a dual CAR-T context in that if you had some other uh, targeting, uh, you're targeting some other target, like for instance, mesothelin or some other uh, target, uh, no target is expressed in 100% of the tumor cells, or expressed in maybe you know, 60, 70%. So if you then start killing those cells that, that are expressing that particular target, um, the T cells, the CAR T cells, will then in that process secrete interferon gamma and upregulate the expression of ICAM-1 in the remainder of the tumor cells. So you're 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 making you're taking advantage of of multiple um, multiple targets in the tumor with this dual CAR T uh, strategy. So people have looked at that a little bit in in the hematological malignancies, uh, but we're uh, we're pushing to um, develop that in the context of going after solid tumors. Essentially, from what I understand, the rationale would be just to improve the efficiency of that CAR T cell therapy against a different subpopulation of, of cancer cells. Exactly. Sure, you're, getting a, you're killing a broader spectrum of tumor cells. Got it. Super exciting. Uh, perfect. Eric, I think one more topic that I want to discuss with you uh, is related to, to your previous work at uh, Antigen Express. Um, I think the topic that is also very hot in oncology today are the cancer vaccines. And I know that in Adgen, you uh, worked on the peptide-based cancer vaccines. Now we have obviously the explosion of mRNA technology in the industry, uh, partly driven by the uh, COVID um, vaccines. In your opinion, will the application of anti-cancer vaccines, being it peptide or mRNA-based, improve over the time? And if so, which specific cancer indications do you see as the front line for, for the use cases for that technology? Right, sure. Well, there's, we've definitely seen uh, you know, a, a tremendous increase in the interest in vaccines since COVID. Um, I mean, it, it's really kind of interesting to see an MNR, mRNA vaccine that has not been used up until now in any context, to see that suddenly then approved in, um, in a prophylactic setting. So, um, uh, that's combined with, I think, uh, as I indicated, a lot of the increase of knowledge just in, in cancer immunotherapy in general is giving a big boost to the field of, of cancer vaccines. So, um, as well as, you know, combinations with the checkpoint inhibitors, as I indicated, it's, it's kind of, they're kind of a yin and yang a little bit. Anything one does to, to, you know, activate T cells, be it CAR T cells or cancer vaccines, is really kind of stepping on the gas to activate the immune system, while checkpoint inhibitors are, are taking off the brakes. And there's always, you know, tumors have gotten many, many cancers are very good at secreting various cytokines that, that uh, suppress immune cells. So I think the combination uh, of those two, of, of checkpoint inhibitors with cancer vaccines, other type of act, immune activating technologies uh, will be very beneficial. So I think there's, there's, there's clearly been an increase over the last few years in the number of trials going on with cancer vaccines. I think that'll increase. In terms of the types of cancer people are going after, um, I think it still remains, you know, those, those patients that have uh, a lower disease burden. So patients that have, um, you know, not bulky disease, 
They've gone through initial therapies to reduce the, the size of the tumors. Um, and you're, you're really kind of um, trying to activate the immune system to, um, uh, you know, kind of mop up the rest, as it were. Um, I think that's still the population that people have the most uh, uh, most interested in in regards to uh, immunotherapy cancer cancer vaccines. Got it. And in terms of approach to the vaccines, do you think that it will have to remain personalized? That we would definitely need to process the tumor material from each individual patient and then tweak that either mRNA or peptide-based vaccines to that individual patient, or there is a chance that some off-the-shelf anti-cancer vaccines might appear in the market at some point in the future. Right. So people banned a number of years ago, maybe five years ago, looking at so-called um, neoantigens. Um, so most of those are what are called private antigens for the individual patient. Um, it still takes a fair bit of time, say something like three months, to, um, to generate a, a vaccine, a ther- an immunotherapeutic vaccine based on those neoantigens. Uh, and I think some of the hurdles are the same that one encountered with more off-the-shelf um, vaccines that people have been developing. So they're, they're still ongoing, but I, I think um, probably, you know, I, I think these, um, the more common um, targets, you know, the, not the neoantigens, I, I think uh, they're not going away anywhere. I, I think that those are still good targets and, and people have, have really kind of validated many cancer targets not just with CAR T cells, but also with, um, you know, antibody drug conjugates, various, you know, monoclonal antibody therapy. So there are a number of good targets out there which are, are common for which one can make them off-the-shelf um, uh, off the shelf vaccines. So I think it's going to be more a challenge of identifying the right patient population and, you know, what point in disease is, the, is, is optimal really for introducing some type of um, uh, activating cancer immunotherapy. Perfect. Understand. Great. And Eric, since we speak about the future, um, what I would like to know, what are the three things that you are looking for, you expect to happen in the field of immune oncology over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Sure, sure. Yeah. Now, I mean, the first thing is, is um, you know, translating some of the success that people have seen in hematological malignancies in patients with solid solid tumors, and that's that's clearly the focus of Afimmune. I think they've um, you know they've shown really good uh, good progress in that regard. So that's the first thing I'd like to see. You know, see CAR T cells, the activity that's been shown in hematological translated into solid tumors, which uh, really comprise something like ninety percent of the cancers. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, I think um, you know it'd be it'd be, and, and I think. People are clearly, you know, discovering now how to do this is to generate a more long-lasting immune response. Uh, many of the, as I mentioned, there's been great success in, patient, in patients with hematological malignancies, uh, but there are, you know, many relapses. It's, uh, to really get a long-term remission, to really make use of the immune system as one originally envisioned, which was to, you know, activate the immune system so that you know, it's, it's the way we're dealing with infectious diseases like COVID. So, okay, maybe we'll need a booster shot every couple of years. Uh, you know, that's no big deal if you have cancer and it keeps it at bay. So I think, um, I think definitely in, in the next 10 years, we'll see progress in terms of managing cancer in that regard. Um, I think the other thing is, is we're, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of information that we're getting 
um, both from many different patients, many different studies, and also with individual patients. I mean, a lot of the technologies now we're looking at, you know, single cell sequencing to look at, uh, um, you know, what exactly is going on in that patient. Um, so I think in the next, clearly the next 10 years that, uh, you know, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning will be applied. Uh, and that could really kind of change the way people um, go about uh, both in a research aspect and a clinical aspect in, in developing drugs. Um, so I think that's, there's going to be clearly growing pains of that, uh, in, in that, in that uh, quest. But I think definitely in the next 10 years, there's going to be um, pretty significant inroads in terms of applying those tools. So, um, so, uh, so I think as people said before, you don't need to worry about computers taking over your job. But I think um, you should worry about people that know how to use AI and machine learning taking over the jobs of the people that don't know how to use those tools. So I'm, I think in the next, clearly the next 10 years, that's going to be uh, uh, probably somewhat transformational in, in, in not just cancer, even the therapy. Um, but I think, uh, you know, clearly in that field as well, there are, you know, many different factors that play into it. And, and I think sorting that out is, um, is going to require some of these, these more advanced tools. Definitely. Yeah, it sounds like a very busy but also exciting future for the next 10 years. And uh, let's hope that, that all of those things will come to fruition. And speaking about bringing things to fruition, uh, the one thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, your experience in bringing uh, drugs and new uh, therapies to the market and your view on the process of that and has it changed over the last 20, 30 years that you, you spent in this industry and where do you expect it to evolve going forward? Right, right. Yeah, no, it's um, the bottom line is that it, it is difficult bringing drugs to market. Um, yeah. I, it's uh, 20, 30 years ago, people said too, you know, 90% of, uh, of new drugs that enter clinical trials fail. And I think that's roughly what it is now. So that's, that's difficult. Uh, it shows you the difficulty of it. I think part of what people need to do is to um, is to close that gap between research and clinical development. I, I think that's um, that's part of it. So I, I think people need to get uh, uh, smarter in terms of how they're doing clinical trials and really uh, at all levels. You know, be it from community hospitals to university hospitals um, have people really engaged in the um, in that aspect of closing that 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 gap that currently exists between uh, research and clinical applications so as I mentioned that you know animal models always have their limitations I think we're getting to the point now where hopefully we can get information from um, early stage clinical trials that would um, would give us better information, you know, everything from which are the, the, the optimal patients that we can enroll that we would see, expect to see a response in uh, to the design of, of novel uh, treatment strategies. So I, I think it's, it's still difficult. It's changing in that regard. Um, I, I think other things, too, is, is you know, it's, it's clearly a lot of the fields are more crowded than they used to be. I know five years ago, I think there was almost nothing for, say, triple negative breast cancer. So yeah. if you wanted to do a trial in triple negative breast cancer, it was relatively easy. Now there's, there's, they've made inroads, which is a great thing for patients, but 
it's an added hurdle for identifying your um, that patient population that would be most likely to enroll in a, in a new study. So I think that's that's maybe been added on to it. Got it. Yeah, there is certainly no shortage of, of challenges in this uh, space. And uh, going back to your point, um, bringing, uh, bridging this uh, gap between science and then uh, pharmaceutical industry, I'd like to ask uh, the question um, that probably a lot of the younger um, listeners in our audience are wondering about. Um, what type of advice would you give to the people who are thinking about transitioning from academia to industry and either by joining an established um, pharma company or, or starting something on their own? Yeah, no, that's, that's always a, a big decision. Um, I, you know, I, was, I love that, the, the, that part of biotech where there's, there's really good science, you know, solid science coming from academia and is really ready for um, more resources. Um, however successful it was in academia, it's, it's always a little bit of a microcosm. Um, you just can't get the funding from grants to really do you know, good-sized clinical trials. So, um, so that's, that, that's kind of the, the excitement of it, that, that I think if, if people you know, have that, that sense of, um, of excitement about really bringing something forward, um, definitely they should follow it. I think part of it too is just from a practical perspective. It's um, it's good for young people considering it to um, try and get a little bit of a sense of the uh, uh, of the business world, the financial world that is um, has really evolved tremendously around biotechnology. Um, I recall when I, I, I first made the transition from academia to to uh, biotechnology that, uh, I mean, in academia, you know, you write papers, you get grants, and you have a pretty good sense of what's, what's keeping the ship afloat, right? But when you get into biotech, it's, it's different. It's different. And sometimes you just really don't have an idea exactly what's keeping it up. So I think it's important for young people to, um, to look from that perspective, to, 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 to get a sense of, of how that, uh, you know, financing in biotech works, and you know there are many biotech companies around where I think it's not that difficult to uh, to to get a sense of that. And and clearly, you know, one needs to be cautious as well. I mean, you know, a lot of the funding comes from Wall Street, uh, in addition to other you know lots of investors there. But you know, Wall Street's like a big city. The good parts of town are not so good parts of town. So one needs to to be a little wary of that. And the same thing with uh, with investors. There's some great investors out there. There's some other investors that uh, you know they're they're looking to make a fast uh, uh, you know fast uh, uh, a fast buck and that's kind of it. So I think I think it's important for young people to uh, you know try and definitely you know shouldn't hesitate putting their putting their their toe in the water of seeing what it's like. But um, uh, it's an exciting, uh, very exciting uh, career, and I can I can highly recommend it if you're if you're up for the the rough and tumble that is biotech. Great, Eric. And if I may ask just one uh, more personal question, what was the experience uh, that struck you most after that transition uh, to to the industry from academia? It was really the commitment of a variety of people involved with that first company. Um, as I mentioned, it was you know it was hard to tell what's really keeping the ship afloat. But I found out later that actually the um, in that particular company, the Hybridon, that um, we were close to making our first first deal. This was with with Hoffman LaRoche Pharmaceuticals, a very big deal. We had the opportunity of doing a deal with another company before that, a smaller company 
for, I think it was $5 million, a fair bit. But what I found out later was that the CEO and presidents took out a second mortgage on their private homes to make payroll because they knew that Roche agreement was coming. So seeing those types of things, seeing the, the commitment of people there and the passion they have for it, that's, that's also inspiring. So that was, that was one of my first uh, kind of initiations into the, the biotech world. It does sound inspiring, and, and it should be so. And I hope that uh, lots of our listeners will, will hear this story and uh, also realize that, that this passion and motivation can go a long way if it's put uh, into the right uh, things. And, and let's hope that uh, more and more people will, uh, will do so, uh, right, and help uh, our field, the world of biotech, uh, grow um, further, building upon great scientific ideas. Right, right. No, yep, absolutely. Great, Eric. Uh, that was my pleasure to have this conversation with you. You are such a role model in the biotech uh, space. Uh, I really liked everything you described of the CAR T cells, cancer vaccines. Um, it was super insightful. I'm sure our audience uh, will uh, learn a lot from this conversation. One last question before I let you go. Where can our audience find you online in case they would like to reach out to you? Sure, sure. They can email me at uh, evhofe at gmail.com. Perfect. Eric, thanks a lot. I wish you best of luck for, for your next steps and we'll definitely stay in touch. Likewise, good talking with you. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Please rate us there and leave a comment that helps us to grow and deliver best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t.com. Our show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com or reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much, have a great day, and until next time.